You're listening to Inward with Rabbi Joey Rosenfeld on the Shefa Podcast Network. Join Rabbi Joey as he guides us through the world and major works of Kabbalah, Hasidic masters, and Jewish philosophy, shedding light on the inner life of the soul. Okay, so tonight, Bezras Hashem, we're going to be continuing with our series of Shirim on the world of Ishbitz and Radzin. And this is going to be the ninth and second to last year in the series. Bezras Hashem, we're going to end either after Yantif or in the middle of Yantif with a, a cumulative Shir on the Indian of Tcheles. And why Tcheles was such a, an Indian, a, a fundamental Yesod or idea in the writings of the Sod Yisharim uh, as the key that ties the entire sugyos together. Tonight, what we're going to be discussing is a rather delicate topic, and it's a topic that is built upon all of the previous shirim. In the previous shirim, what we've been focusing on in the world of Ishbitz, as we spoke about in the Hakdama shir, is that it's possible to say that the entire edifice of the world of Ishbitz and Radzin is centered in and around the concept of Malchus. The series of shirim that we gave prior to Ishbitz and Radzin were the series of shirim on the Ten Spheros. And when we came to the culmination of the Ten Spheros, when we came to the manifestation, rather, of all of the nine kochos, from Kesar all the way down to Yesod, they finally find a place or a space to manifest within the space that we described as Malchus. Now, because Malchus is the last rung <clears throat> in the emanatory ladder through which God, so to speak, discloses himself within and as reality on a certain level, Malchus itself is a paradoxical space that is once the full manifestation of godliness within the world, but for the sake of ensuring, for the sake of ensuring Bechira, or free will, there needed to be a requisite amount of concealment and that amount of concealment forces Malchus to be contorted. So that Malchus, when you look at it externally, it's grotesque, it's ugly, it's governance, it's the way things run in, in this worldliness. Specifically in the world of Malchus, there's a concealment, there's an impoverishment, there's a destitution. As the Zohar describes, it has nothing of its own. It's compared to David Malka Mashiach, to David HaMelech, who was meant to be a stillborn, who was not meant to live within this world. He needed to borrow time from Adam HaRishon, as the Medrash tells us. So Malchus takes on this paradoxical liminal space where it is the end of all forms of HaKadosh Baruch Hu's disclosure within this world, but it is specifically the place that we engage it, and because we're engaging in that space, there needs to be a requisite amount of concealment and hiddenness, and it appears to be devoid. And we said that the entire concept of the world that Ishbitz and Radzin were coming to teach is within this sphere of Malchus, that other drachim in Hasidus, other drachim or zramim or streams of thought 
can be identified or associated with particular spheros, with particular ideas that each school has its own emphasis. But Ishbitz and Radzin were speaking from a place of Malchus. They were speaking from a world that at first glance appeared to be devoid of order. That the first halacha of Malchus means that it has nothing of its own. And yes, it's specifically through that nothingness that it allows itself to become translucent to the point that it empties itself out for the sake of showing what truly fills all things, which is the light of godliness. Nevertheless, at first glance, it appears to simply be empty. And that translucent mirror doesn't appear to lead anywhere but to its own emptiness. And it's specifically in that place that Ishbitz and Radzin came to find drachim or tikkunim for the individual. And it's in that place where we find life to be difficult, which was what we discussed in the first year, which is noyach adam nivra, that it would have been easier or simpler or more pleasant for a person to have not been created than being created. And yes, the Ishbitzer and the Radziner Tzadikim pointed out that implicit in that statement from Chazal is the fact that while it might be easier or more pleasant not to have been created, it is by no means better. Chazal didn't say mutav. Chazal didn't say it would have been better for a person not to be born. Because in truth, it is better to be born. Because our job is to move through that difficulty, to move through the unpleasantness of Malchus. And this is what gives birth to the Sveikos, of the Ilana de Sveika, the Mikubalim, as well as the Tzadikim of Ishbitz and Radzin, refer to the world of Malchus as the world of Ulai, as the world of perhaps, where there's an absence of certainty, where a person has to choose through their own volitional actions, through their own Bechira, to choose to think in a certain way. And it's this Malchus that leaves a person dissatisfied so often because it can never be satisfied by what this world has to offer. And so everything we've spoken about until now in the world of Ishbitz and Radzin speaks to this space of Malchus. And the most important teaching about Malchus that we spoke about in the Hakdama is the idea based on the Sabbat de Mishpatim, the Zohar and Parshas Mishpatim, where when the Tzadikim, when the Chavraya of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai encounter this vagabond traveler riding on a donkey who, instead of carrying garbage, is carrying secrets, he describes Malchus as Ulamta Shapirta Delespa Enin, as a beautiful princess who is devoid of vision, who has no eyes. Ulamta Shapirta Delespa Enin. And Malchus, the way that HaKadosh Baruch Hu manifests himself within this world, in and as existence, in and as reality, in and as the governance that we experience as human beings who are capable of choice between good and bad, and all of the requisite situated preparations that needed to take place from the origins of that original desire of God, so to speak, to create the world down into our very embodied nature, everything led to the realm of Bechira. And this world, this world of Malchus is referred to as the princess that is devoid of eyes, the beautiful princess who has no eyes. And the Tzadikim of Ishbitz and Radzin explain this in multiple places. That what does it mean to say that Malchus, that this world appears to be devoid of vision? It means that when a person looks at the world, what they're confronted by first and foremost is Olam Kimen Hogonohig, that the world operates according to its basic natural order. Because really, if a person was viewing the world from the perspective of divine governance, a person who plants a seed would be able to see growth and see the niflo sabora, see the creation of God, so to speak, that allows something to emerge out of nothing, 
of construction to come out of the destruction of the seed. And somebody who stole the seed, somebody who acted out of line or transgressed the boundaries of what their proper behavior was meant to be, would not see any results. There would be no growth. There would be an immediate repercussion as the result of not engaging properly. But what we see is that a ganav or a goslin or a thief can engage in unethical behavior, in unpleasantries, and yet they're not going to be punished for it. We're still going to see that growth. And it appears that the world is blind, incapable of seeing the difference between good and bad. What it really points to, it's symptomatic of the fundamental and existentially grounding question of all of religious observance and all spiritual activity, which is why do the good suffer and why do the bad prosper? Meaning to say, why is the world unfair? And it's specifically in this world that appears blind to fairness that the tzaddikim of Ishbitz and Radzin were coming to show that in truth, we are the ones who have to choose to give vision to Malchus. We are the ones who have to look at this world that appears to be blind to justice and blind to the order of fairness and unfairness. And it's us as volitional creatures who have the capacity of gazing deeply enough into the reality of this world through the imaginary and through the symbolic sheaths that cover us from what is truly present down to the kernel of the real. And it's us who are capable of penetrating with our own vision to see the true nature of mishpat, to see the true nature of fairness in this world. That the world is blind because it's our job to apply vision to it. That the world appears to be unfair because it is our bechira to choose to see the fairness of God that embodies the unfairness. And it's our job to enlighten the darkened eyes and the blindness of the princess, which is Malchus. And it's our job to elevate it. And that is what Ishbitz and Radzin were coming to speak about throughout. Now, what we're going to be speaking about tonight is the nature of Malchus. When a person looks at the writings of the Zohar HaKadosh, Rav Moshe Kordavaro, the Ramak, all of the Mekubalim that preceded the Ramak, and eventually after the Ramak, we came to the Arizal, what a person finds is that the entire edifice of Kabbalah or Lurianic Kabbalah, which is what the Baal Shem Tov and his students, and especially the Meishiloach and the Sodisharm were basing themselves off of, is that existence and being is a gendered concept. Now, before entering into a discussion about the gendered principles of div divinity and divine engagement, what I want to make very clear, which will still not be clear enough because it can take hours and hours and hours to fully express the hakdama necessary to speak about this, but we're not speaking about physiological gender. We're not speaking about a particular sex versus the other sex. When I speak about, or when the tzaddikim speak about masculinity or femininity, they are not speaking about the gendered properties that exists within the world of human beings as male and female. When we speak about femininity and masculinity, what we're speaking about are spiritual principles that apply to each and every individual. We're not speaking about the feminine versus the masculine in the sense that one is the sex of the female and one is the sex of the male. But when we speak about femininity and masculinity, we're always already speaking about two energies, two kochos, two strengths, two phenomenological lenses through which to view our own experiences that apply to each and every individual. 
so that when we see that in the writings of Kabbalah, there seems to be a binary opposition that is aligned between masculinity and femininity, which gives precedence to masculinity as that which is expressive versus the lower grade of femininity as that which is passive and receptive, this by no means is meant to be applied in any political sense to some gendered bias between man and female, but rather it is meant to be viewed as a psychological truism that with each and every individual, there exists the paradigm of masculinity and femininity to the point that there is nothing that exists within reality that cannot be broken down into the two irreducible pieces of the expressive masculine principle and the receptive and constrictive feminine principle. But again, we are not speaking about male versus female or woman versus man or Adam versus Chava. We are speaking about two modes through which God, so to speak, has disclosed himself into reality, which can be metaphorized in the sense of masculinity and femininity. Now, Malchus is always referred to as the feminine principle. Malchus being the lowest rung in the ladder of God's disclosure into the world is that which receives everything that preceded it. So like we spoke about in the series of Serum on the Spheros, those nine upper Spheros from Kesser down to Yesod all represent God's disclosure to reality. An act of expressivity where something comes from above and moves below through an act of engagement, through an act of reaching out, through an act of elongation, of expressivity and sharing, which we're going to refer to as the masculine principle. That masculine principle, that aspect of dechura, the Aramaic term that the Zohar uses to describe masculinity, is representative of expressivity, moving beyond oneself into spaces that are beyond itself. Malchus, as the receptacle, as the vessel that allows for all of this influx to settle and actually take shape, is going to be referred to as the feminine principle. Feminine in the sense that it is receptive. It is passive in its appearance. And I use the word appearance very specifically because it is not passive in its essence, but it is passive in its appearance, in that it is devoid of anything of itself. And its sole goal, the feminine principle of divinity's sole purpose, is to take that which preceded it and allow it to culminate and manifest. Now, the classical example that is utilized from the biological form of man versus woman is that the man expresses a base potential of life and that the woman or the female has the capacity of taking that base potential of life and allowing it to germinate and gestate to the point that it becomes something actual and something real. Now, when a person looks at the writings of the Mikubalim and the Balei Hasidus, as well as the Lithuanian Kabbalah of the school of the Vilnagon, what a person sees is a very typical binary opposition, which seems to place masculinity as the spiritual principle of above and beyond femininity as a spiritual principle. That the capacity to express itself is greater than the capacity to be receptive and to receive something. That the capacity of moving out of oneself seems to be placed in a hierarchical primary space over and above the ability for a person to be as they are in a receptive state. 
Inherent within the Kabbalistic system, however, is an undoing of this binary. That when we see that the masculine principle of expressivity and disclosure is higher and valued above the feminine principle of receptivity and concealment, there is a movement within, murmuring underneath, in the unconscious of the text, even within the Arizal and the Zohar, that speaks of a revolution, of a deconstruction in the Derridian sense of this binary opposition between male and female or masculine and feminine, which speaks of a revolution that will take place at the end of days, where we will see that the binary opposition and the hierarchical order that we operate according to, wherein that masculine principle of expressivity and disclosure and revelation is higher and above than the feminine principle of concealment and containment, is in truth only due to the lack of proper vision. Because deep down in the recesses of being, the feminine principle, the capacity to receive, the capacity to be what I am and not try and be something else, but rather to accept myself as I am in the moment and receive that which comes from above me without any attempt to assert myself, that feminine passivity, those silent footsteps that Levinas speaks about so often when describing the feminine principle in Tanakh in the Bible, that is in truth rooted in a loftier place, in a higher place than the masculine principle of expression. That there is an inherent unconscious impulse within the Kabbalistic structure, within our texts, that speak of a gendered revolution, so to speak, wherein this patriarchal, this ontological patriarchal order, wherein masculinity is above and beyond femininity, or the male is above and beyond the female, will be undone in a redemptive gesture that shows that in truth, the feminine principle of receptivity, which appeared to be degraded and impoverished during existence, will be shown to be loftier and above and beyond the highest manifestations of what we might refer to as the masculine spiritual principle or that masculinity of divinity that is expressive because the ability to abide within oneself, the ability to be what one is and not try and be some other thing, the ability to receive without any ego separating between who I am and what the divine will wants me to be, is in truth rooted in the highest order of being, which is Keser. And this is described already in the Tukune Zohar when they say Keser Malchus, that the crown of kingship, but in truth, Keser, which is the loftiest space in the Sirotic order, like we discussed, that undying and undulating desire and will that plays around in that internal Sha'ashua, that internal self-engagement, self wherein I desire because I, because I want pleasure and I take pleasure because I desire, is in truth one and the same as that receptive principle of Malchus. The only difference is that Malchus is willing to descend into the nether regions of being. It's willing to move into the darkness so that when we look at it from a, a present perspective, it appears to be devoid of order. It appears to be impoverished and destitute like David Melech. But in truth, the ultimate redemptive gesture within the Kabbalistic system is the disclosure and the revelation that what appears to have been lowest is in truth rooted in the highest that even ma'asu habanim haisal rospina, 
this Evan, this stone, this feminine principle, this aspect of Malchus, David HaMelech, which has been cast down to the bottom of the order, and it was despised by all, and it was embarrassed by all, is in truth going to be shown to be the foundation stone of everything that the feminine principle will in the future be shown to be loftier and above and beyond the masculine principle. Like the Pasuk in Yirmiyahu says that bara chadasha ba'aretz, that God will create something new in the land, nekeva tesovev gever, that the feminine will encircle the masculine. That nowadays in exiled history, in the mundanity of this worldliness, masculinity and expressivity appear to be above and beyond the feminine principle, and therefore one can say that the masculine encircles the feminine, because what is more powerful encircles what is less powerful. But in the future, through the prophetic vision, we're told that in the future, the feminine will encircle the masculine, and that the feminine principle of receptivity and lack and, and concealment will be shown to be of a loftier spiritual value than even the expressive nature of masculinity. And what I want to say here is not without machlokas, that the Arizal speaks of this gendered bias. The Arizal speaks of this feminine and masculine engagement. And what it seems to be when one looks at the writings of the Arizal is that at the end of the day, when all is said and done, after that redemptive upheaval wherein the feminine principle of concealment and darkness is shown to be of a loftier level than what it appears to be in this world, the highest place that the feminine principle can arrive, according to the Arizal uh, in his discussion of Malchus and Yesod or Malchus and Zerantmen, is that perhaps the feminine principle can equalize itself with the masculine principle. Perhaps that which appears to be hidden and sullied and broken and concealed and difficult and painful can be shown to truly be on par with that which is present and that which is valuable and that which we value in this world. As if to say all of the struggle that we've gone through in this world, which we can associate with Malchus and the feminine principle, will be shown to have been on par with those moments of revelation and those moments of joy. But the moments of concealment of malchus, of femininity, can never be shown to be loftier than masculinity, but they can be shown to be of equal standing, of what is referred to based on the midrashic interpretation of the sun and the moon's engagement in the world as shrei malachim meshamshim bekesar echad, of two kings, the masculine ideal and the feminine ideal as operating in unison. But what I want to say, and this is not in my own name, this is in the name of Tzadikim, and it's not only Ishbitz and Radzin that is willing to go there, but they do it explicitly, that inherent within the system is a step further. That there is a way to look at our experiences that we associate with malchus and femininity and concealment and difficulty and svekos and darkness and self-doubt, and passive engagement in the world, and a sense of hopelessness at times, wherein a person loses sight of what they're trying to do and needs to settle with what they are, there is a movement, there is a makom, there is an inyan that allows for us to see that in truth, the feminine principle, that which appears to be difficult and painful, and all of the sfekos that we go through in this world and our own psychological and phenomenological experience is in truth of a higher and loftier spiritual value than the masculine principle of expression and accomplishment 
and positive actions so that when we can look back on our lives and we can look at our own spiritual situatedness, there is a place where we can see the difficulty and the pain and the struggle and the concealment and the confusion and the darkness and the dimness and the silence and the passivity and the concealment and all of the metaphors that we associate with that feminine principle that there is a place where we can say an inversion of terms takes place and that which has appeared to be so low is in truth revealed to be higher than anything that we could have ever imagined. And that specifically within our destitution, what we are embodying unconsciously is the loftiest expression of what HaKadosh Baruch Hu can have us experience in this world. And what I'm going to try and show in the writings of Ishbitz and Radzin from particular sources, is how this comes out. Now, before we look at the sources, one last introduction that I want to give, and again, we can give an entire series of shirim on the concept of ontological gender, of the feminine principle and the masculine principle as it is expressed in the writings of Ishbitz and Radzin or the Rebbe Rashab from Lubavitch who has unique principles here or the Arizal. But suffice it to say for our purposes that amongst the almost infinite amount of metaphors or synonyms that can be applied to this binary opposition of masculinity and femininity is something that the Arizal refers to based on the Zohar as or yashar and or choser, a straight light. Or yashar is a light that descends from above to below, me lamala lamata, or what is referred to as isarusa de laela, an inspiration that comes from above to below, that hierarchical order that moves from what is loftier to what is lower. That process which we so often identify as things that are higher are better and things that are lower are worse that is identified with the masculine principle of expressivity from above to below. And the feminine principle is going to be referred to as or choser, as a returning light, or a light that goes from below to above, that takes that which is most broken in this world and sees that as the birthplace of growth. So if the masculine principle is the process of divine expression from above to below, the feminine principle is the movement from below to above, where we move specifically out of our destitution, specifically out of our situatedness in filth and failure and brokenness and sabrachenkeit, and we reveal that specifically from that point, we can allow for spirituality to burgeon and grow to disclose the true essence of what God Kavyacha wanted out of this world. So the masculine principle is from above to below, and the feminine principle is from below to above. This is referred to in the Zohar HaKadosh, and the Arizal says that these two ideas are the accumulation of his entire process. Mayin Dukhrin, masculine waters, or Mad, that descends from above to below, and feminine waters, Mayin Nukvin, that emerge from below to above. And as we're going to see, one of the paradigmatic factors that defines the value of Mayanukvin or that feminine principle of Malchus is the realization that it is specifically from within darkness that light is born. Specifically from within our human situatedness, within that concealed and blinded space of Malchus, the Olamta Shapirta de Leis that 
princess who is stuck in a palace without any vision, it's specifically from there that we can endow ourselves with a spiritual vision that sees not only light as light, but specifically darkness as a capacity to disclose a deeper level of light, like we've been trying to describe since the beginning of Reish Milim. And with those haktamos, and the tefillah that those haktamos are, are properly expressed and properly understood, we're going to begin looking at a few sources from the corpus of Ishbitz and Radzin to show the ascendancy of the feminine, to show how this feminine principle in Ishbitz and Radzin in truth takes on a you that is deeper and more profound and spiritually evocative and fecund than the masculine principle of disclosure and expressivity and presence and all of those synonyms that we so often associate it with. The first source that I want to start with, Bezra Sashem, is going to be the Tiferes HaChenochi, which we've used so often in the Shirim. Now this is Rav Gershon Henech Liner of Radzin, the Shod Yesharim's Perish on the Zohar HaKadosh. And this is going to be in Parshos Matos. In the old printing, it's going to be page 170, but the Divra Maskil is Tachazi, come and see. Now, Rav Gershon Henach writes as follows. He says, Inyan, and the true aspect of this statement in the Zohar, which is describing the female gender, actually, Inyan, and the idea is in truth, Shebe'emes, Bechol Nefesh, in every soul, both masculine and feminine, so we're not talking about gender in a physical sense, but within each soul, there's this feminine principle, its capacity to receive that which comes from above it, its ability to be present and to receive, like the nekevo shebi Israel, like the feminine principle, roimzim, what they hint to, amasha asid Hashem yisparach lahair li Yisrael. That feminine principle of receptivity is in truth a hint or an intimation of what God, Kav Yachol, has promised to the Jewish people. Like the Pasuk says in Mishle, that in the future, the Eishas Chayil, the woman of valor, will be the crown of her husband. A verse that is taken in the Kabbalah of the Arizal to represent this ontological reality wherein the feminine finally moves above and beyond the masculinity where the feminine principle of receptivity and absence is shown to be in truth the crowning jewel of the masculine principle of expression. Kidechsiv, like the Pasuk says in Yirmiya, Ki bara Hashem chadasha ba'aretz nekeva tasoviv gever, that in the future God will create something novel, something new, wherein the feminine will encircle the masculine. And the Indian in this is as follows, because in its root, in the root of the strength of that which is receptive in this world, that which appears to be stuck in absence and in need of something that comes from above it, which brings about all of the vicissitudes which we've discussed throughout the serum of sveikos and dissatisfaction and unpleasantness and the questions of bechira. All of that contains within itself the truth that yeshbo or me'makom gavoa ma'od, that within that receptive principle, there is an experience, a light that comes from an incredibly lofty place. Because after the fact that we see that it is capable of moving so far beyond its source, once we see that 
we can experience godliness in such a low place, in the space of our own individualized existence with our sveikos and our bilbulim and all of the things that we associate with what it means to live as a human being in this world, it appears that Malchus is almost a bilavush meruchak, that it appears garbed in garments that are removed from godliness. Because it has this courage to descend into such low places, batach yesh by mivtach ois, it must, and it is abundantly clear that it contains a deep promise, a deep secret that it's not afraid of removing itself from the light of Kedusha. Only that which is so secure in itself that it can return back to its source is willing to descend so far away from its source. That it knows so intuitively and so deeply within the interior of the interiority of its will that it will see its source again. It obviously has this courage. Only now it appears that it has been distanced and removed. As we're going to see, this is the secret of the diminution of the moon. The sun represents that masculine principle of expressivity, that which has raised that move beyond itself to enliven and enlighten and warm that which is beyond it. The moon, on the other hand, which is passive, which receives its light from the sun as a receptive principle, is identified as that feminine principle. And we're going to see that this descent of Malchus, this willingness of the feminine principle to descend so far beyond its source, because it deeply is so sure, intuitively, that it will be able to return back to its source, that is rooted in this ontological conversation between the sun and the moon, so to speak. It's specifically because Malchus and the feminine principle and the nefesh and ourselves, each and every one of us in our femininity, in our feminine principle within us, it's specifically because we have removed ourselves from our source and allowed ourselves to be cast down into this world of darkness and Ilana Desveika and Noyach Leila Adam Shalanivra Yoter Mishanivra that we have such a burning desire to return back to our source. That burning desire, which we said, leads to the dissatisfaction of the soul and its source. Not because we're unhappy, but because our neshamos know of something that is so far beyond what this world can offer that nothing will satisfy it. That chuka, that desire, that yearning, that feminine principle that seeks to move above and beyond itself from below to above in hopes of fervently finding something to grab hold of, that desire, that existential need, that craving for something more, to fill it, that's specifically because it comes from such a lofty place. Like the Pasuk says, the soul will never be filled. And therefore, because in their intuitive, unconscious nature, all of us are aware of from such a lofty place we come, 
We're not satisfied with anything that this world has to offer because we know what we truly want. And all we're desiring is to return back to a place where we'll truly be satisfied. So this feminine principle of dissatisfaction that we all live with is in truth rooted in the fact that we come from such a lofty place that nothing else can satisfy us. Because in the future, God will disclose God will disclose in truth the light of their source. And in the future, the wife will be the crowning jewel of the husband and femininity and receptivity and concealment will be that which is above and beyond disclosure and revelation that comes from that masculine principle. And the feminine will encircle the male. And what this means is that Hashem will show us that the tachlis of kavana, that the main purpose in existence and the main purpose in creation is specifically in this world, specifically removed from the light of godliness to the point that this receptive principle of femininity can look as if it exists in a world that is removed entirely of God. Ulamta shapirta dules pa'enin the world as we experience it that appears to be unfair and devoid of the vision of Chachma, with no Kvod Shemayim, with no honor of heaven. And it's specifically there that the Kvod Shemayim comes out of. It's specifically from that place, from that place where that feminine principle is willing to descend into, that God wants our avoda, Because like we said from the beginning of the Shirem on Milin, it's one thing for Kedusha to be disclosed in a place that is primed for Kedusha. It's one thing for Hashem to reveal Himself in infinitude. It's one thing for a person to serve God when there's clarity and when there's easy waters. But it's an entirely other thing and a deeper revelation when a person shows that God exists even within the broken, dark pieces of our lives even within concealment, even within darkness, even within simtsum, even within the grotesque nature of the depraved malchus, when we're capable of showing that there's kedusha there also, what we do is we disclose a doubled level of kedusha of godliness. Because not only is God capable of disclosing himself in infinitude and easy spaces, but God is shown to disclose himself even within those places that seem to scream about the absence of God. That the Hester itself is nishapech tegiloi. That the concealment itself, that concealment of the feminine is revealed to be in truth a greater level of revelation. Now, everything that we do, everything that we experience in our lives, the difficulty of our lives, is rooted in this deep unconscious truth that the feminine contains within itself something that is so lofty that it is capable of descending. And this is what the Medrash talks about when it talks about the argument between the sun and the moon. The moon comes to God, so to speak, the Medrash tells us. And it says, could it possibly be that there are two kings who are operating under the same crown? Can it possibly be that the sun and the moon are going to operate in unison? that the masculine principle of disclosure and the feminine principle of concealment are both one and the same and of equal footing. And God says, Kav Yachol, the Medrash tells us, you're right, that's a problem. Go and diminuate yourself, make yourself smaller. Now the Sod Yisharim elsewhere, what we're going to look at right now from the Sefer Psicha, the Sharva Emunah, the Yesod HaChasidus, the introduction, of the Sod Yisharim to his father's Sefer, the Beis Yaakov, 
what we're going to see is a remarkable, remarkable deal. When a person learns the Gemara in Chulin that discusses this argument between the moon and, and HaKadosh Baruch Hu, where the moon says, could it be that the feminine principle of concealment could be of equal footing with the masculine principle of disclosure? Could it be that in difficulty there's as much godliness as easygoing spiritual activity? And God says, Go and diminish yourself. It doesn't say that God diminishes the moon. It says that what Hashem gave is a suggestion. The suggestion was, go and be memayat yourself. Go and diminish yourself. Because what God was saying to the moon is, if you truly want to be above and beyond the sun, if you want that which is receiving to be in truth beyond that which is disclosing, if you want that which is difficult to be above that which is easy, you must descend into a lower place and suffer the experience of living in a world that appears to be devoid of godliness. You must be willing to descend into those nether regions, into those dark places, into those empty spaces or apparently empty spaces and show that even there there's godliness. That's the only way you're going to disclose your ascendancy above the masculine principle of divinity. It's only in your willingness to descend on your own. I can't force you. I can't do it for you. You must choose to do it. A person, says the Ishbitzer Tzadikim, must choose to accept the savlanus of this world. They must choose to accept the difficulty and the struggle of what it means to be a bentorah, what it means to be a servant of God in a world that screams the opposite of godliness. Because specifically then, a person will be capable of saying that even here, even in this space that appears to be so devoid of spirituality, there is a scream, there is an undying scream, an undulating scream that emerges out of absence that screams presence. Not that presence will come to satisfy absence, but that absence is a deeper expression of presence. Like we read in this week's parsha, And the Baal Shem Tov HaKadosh teaches us that when a person is capable of realizing that in the concealment of concealment, there is disclosure, Nifridu oven. The concealment dissipates. It discloses itself. Darkness shines. The Sodi Sharm says as follows, and this is going to be on page Kufmem Dalit on page 144 in Sharha Emuna. He says, and this is the idea of the diminution of the moon, which is from the perspective of, feminine, of femininity. What this means is that the point of Malchus Shemayim, that Malchus that we've been discussing, the point in which God discloses himself in this world, which desired to descend to the lowest level so that there can be a space of human volitional action through volitional Bechira and concealment. Like the Gemara in Hulan says that God says to the moon, go and diminish yourself. It doesn't say that, the moon, that God diminished the moon. Rather, that God gave a suggestion to the moon that it would be good for you to diminish yourself. And this diminishment is for the sake of creation because it shows that in truth, even in this hidden point, in the most concealed point of creation, there is an or yakar ma'od. There is a profoundly valuable light because at the end, besov kol hamidos, when we come to the culmination of the process, in truth, we find that it empties out and it opens up to the beginning, that Malchus is rooted in Keser, that the doubts of this worldliness are rooted in the doubts of Reisha Delo Isyada, in the loftiest place in the order of Ishtal Shalos. 
l'chein haya bal b'sharasha tekifas atzum. And therefore there was this profound chutzpah or tekifas or strength or certainty within the moon to say that I'm okay descending into this place of Hester. And I'm okay receiving the light of godliness through all of these distortions and partitions which make it as if God doesn't exist. Because only then am I able to show that it's specifically mitzad hanigud, mitzad, the opposition of godliness, that godliness exists. Like we said, it's one thing for God to appear and reveal himself from the perspective that allows God to reveal himself. It's an entirely other thing that allows for God to reveal himself from opposition itself. And in truth, by us, by the Jewish people, this is something unique. It's specifically the willingness to descend into concealment and to live with those places that are broken and to recognize that in truth, these are representative of loftier spaces of spirituality. What we spoke about in the shir on choosing not to choose and the shir on Bahira is that each and every person contains within themselves a Yosef paradigm and a Yehuda paradigm. The paradigm of masculine expressivity, which needs to be perfect, which needs to be according to the letter of the law, and that feminine principle of Yehuda, of Malchus, of the kingship of David, which is willing to make mistakes. And the typical binary opposition in its hierarchical situatedness typically sees that Yosef ideal, that living according to the boundary of the law, living according to the minutia of masculine essentiality, is on a loftier level than living in that doubtful space of Chachma. But the Beis Yaakov says something remarkable, and it took me hours to find this. I read this statement in the Beis Yaakov years ago, and it took me hours to look through the Beis Yaakov, the Beis Yaakov Ala Torah to find it because I think it summarizes and it gives credence to what we're trying to say tonight. This is going to be in the Beis Yaakov and Parshas Bayigash, and it's going to be in Os. It's going to be in Os 63. I'm sorry, not 63, 10. The Beis Yaakov says as follows, The Az Nisparer, in the future it will be revealed, Shegodel Kocho Shel Yehuda, Yoter Meyosef, that the strength of Yehuda, the strength of the feminine principle, will be greater than the strength of Yosef, the strength of the masculine principle. Because Yosef, Keneged Yehuda, is the aspect of somebody who is coming to fix something, and something that needs to be fixed. Masculine represents the, the essence that is coming to fix something, that needs to fix something, that expresses something, that has something to say. The feminine principle represents that which needs to be fixed, that which appears to be broken. And once we understand that Yehuda is that which needs to be rectified, that broken thing which needs to be clarified, while Yosef is that which clarifies the broken thing. And the Beis Yaakov says something incredible here, which I've only seen elsewhere in the Mitla Rebbe, Ubi Yisrael ha-misbarer hu And by the Jewish people, by our perspective, by the non-hierarchical order in which we live the world, or by that deconstructive impulse that sees a revolutionary switching of things, the thing that needs clarification, the thing that needs to be fixed, the thing that has descended so low, is in truth of a loftier value and more valuable than the thing that can fix it. 
that that which descends lowest is in truth rooted in the most lofty place. On a practical level, we see this coming out in the writings of the Meishiloach as well. In a famous teaching in Parshas Bereshis, in Chelek Aleph of the Meishiloach, on the Pasuk Eser Ezo Kenegdo, that when HaKadosh Baruch Hu speaks about bringing Chava, the feminine principle, out of Adam, the masculine principle, it says that God made a helpmate, Kenegdo, against him. And the Meishiloach says as follows, Bior Ha'inyan, the true essence of this idea is because the desire of God, so to speak, is that a person should find salvation and help, not from something that agrees with them, but from something that goes against them. Like Rabbi Yochanan in the Gemara, who when Reish Lakish died, desired somebody to ask questions against what he was saying. Because it's specifically through the difficulty, it's specifically through concealment that a person will be capable of coming upon the true essence of themselves. And there's a remarkable teaching in the Beis Yaakov Ala Torah, and this is the Beis Yaakov Akola. This is a different printing of the Beis Yaakov. And this is in Parshas Bereshis, and it's going to be Dibra HaMaskel Vayikra HaAdam. And I want to look at this teaching because it's, it's really a remarkable teaching. It's, it's so fundamentally associated with what we've been trying to say. The question is regarding Adam Harishan, who after he gets punished for the sin, after he gets punished for serving HaKadosh Baruch Hu in a faulty way, that transgression of eating from the Eitz Hadas Tovara, it says that Adam Arishan placed blame on Chava. And the Beis Yaakov writes as follows, after it was revealed to Adam Arishan that there was such a thing as a Nekeva, there was such a thing as a feminine principle, that there was such a thing as a wife or a female, Adam Harishon knew that he had something to rely on. That was what Adam Harishon meant when he said that she told me to eat. What Adam Harishon was truly saying is that I have intuitively a basic trust, a basic reliance on what she has to say. That the masculine principle of expressivity sustains itself on what the feminine principle of containment and concealment knows intuitively. Like it explained in the writings of my father, the Meshiloach. Because the entire sin of Adam, the transgression of Adam, was through the seduction and the concealment of the Nachash. But had the Nachash approached Chava, had the Nachash only attempted to sin through the feminine principle in the world, there would have been no transgression whatsoever. And even had there been a transgression, it would have been disclosed that it was from the perspective of godliness. Because the feminine principle cannot be wrong. There is no place that the feminine principle cannot disclose the godliness in that situation. Because in the future, all of this will be fixed. Everything will be fixed and it will be shown to have been the desire of God. And in the future, the feminine principle will be shown to contain an or gadol me'od, a deep light a light that is beyond and above Adam Arishon. But from the perspective of Adam, from the perspective of that masculine principle, there was a fear to descend into the Eitzadas Tovarah. There was a fear to descend into that place of the Ilana Desveka, into the world of doubt. But she forced him there. She drew him there. She seduced him there because she understood that she was loftier than he was. She had a deeper understanding than he had. And in the beginning, Adam Marishon thought that the woman was only given to him to help. But in the end, when he sees that in truth she has a deeper understanding of desire of God in this world, 
Adam Harishon, the masculine principle, the male sees that in truth, all of its strength comes from that feminine principle. And therefore she is referred to as Mother Nature, the mother of all. Because she is nudging him along in that unconscious privation beyond and above his conscious awareness. And this is why it's referred to as Chava. Because that feminine principle is in truth that unconscious guiding light which reminds us that no matter how far we have fallen, no matter how concealed our experience appears to be, there is still a light that abides within concealment. It's specifically the malchus which will be revealed, la'asid lavo, to be the loftiest space of experience where Ishbitz and Radzin find their main expression of avoda. Ishbitz and Radzin don't seem to be interested in a world that is clarified. They seem to be interested in the process of clarification. Ishbitz and Radzin is not interested in the light that descends from above to below, but rather in the light that can emerge from the concealment and the double darkness that abides within this worldliness. Because when the light breaks through the darkness, it's a doubled light. It's a light that reveals that even darkness is not darkness. Because in truth, darkness is just another expression of light. Whenever we give the next shir, whether it's next week or in two weeks, what we're going to discuss is how all of these shirim can be contained within the concept of a tachlis, within the concept of connecting to the essence of what a person is meant to experience in the moment that they stand in, which is expressed through the Sodi Sharim in this messianic revelation of techeles, of the willingness of human beings to move beyond that exilic state of only wearing white tzitzis, and the desire to taste the future in the present that the treles or the blue thread represents. This podcast is supported in part from a grant from the Hadar Institute. The music is by Zusha. The audio engineer is David Kwan. For more from the Shefa Podcast Network, visit our Facebook page and please subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts.